Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is the interview of the day, folks, on what we're all witnessing, which is across the board commodities lift. Jeffrey DeGraff of Renaissance emailed me yesterday and said, hey, stupid, look at the softs. And I did that. I looked at wheat, corn, and DeGraff is right. They're up as well. Nobody's nailed this like Jeffrey Curry. He's at Goldman Sachs, global head of commodities research, and just nailed uh, this commodity lift. Jeff, uh, Jeff Curry, I want to go to your microeconomics at Chicago. I want you to explain to our audience the constraints of supply build that so many commodities have. These are tangible things, and they are constrained on the supply side where there's some serious inelasticities. Well, we have, uh, on the supply side, we like to call it the revenge of the old economy. We have not invested in old economy production capacity, in some cases, five to 10 years. Um, the reason why is returns in the new economy were so much better that capital got redirected towards tech. Then you overlay ESG issues on this. These sectors are severely starved of capital. You take oil, CapEx, depending on where you are in the world, was down 40 to 70% yeah. in the first half of last year. Tell us about the metals. I mean, I understand copper and we're, you know, John and I are arguing about, Jeff Curry, let's stop the show. Do you quote <laughs> London copper or oh do you quote gosh. Chicago copper? London copper. There you go. 1788. Very good. There we go, John Farrell. So copper we get. Copper's moving up. Tell us about the other metals where if price goes up, supply doesn't come on, does it? Well, it takes anywhere from five to 10 years to bring on a new copper mine. It's the last of the old school commodities that you still dig out of the ground. And that's where we have the real demand push because you have this you know, green CapEx that's starting to begin to be, um, you know, that's going to be behind this energy transition story because we now have a blueprint for energy transition in the U.S., Europe, and China now, something we didn't have eight weeks ago. We believe the CapEx spend associated with this green CapEx is going to be somewhere around $16 trillion over the next decade. Put that on par with China in the 2000s, China spent $10 trillion. So in real wow. terms, about the same. Jeff, we've got to talk about the energy transition story in just a moment. Let's just stay on the metals for a little bit. We have to talk about what's happened in the last 10 years as well. And it started with JS over at Rio Tinto, that shift away from volume to value. The lack of investment we've actually seen in the last decade off the back of the top of the last super cycle, Jeff, how profound is that when you start to think about the dynamics from here on out? Well, I mean, you, the, all these stories have the exact same story. You had uh, very low prices over the last decade, very poor returns in the sector, underinvestment, no demand. Now we're adding demand on top of no supply, and we're creating really tight markets, whether you're talking metals, energy, agriculture. And at the core of the demand story is where the stimulus is going. Stimulus over the previous decade operated through the wealth channel and benefited higher income households. Today, it's benefiting lower income households who spend more on commodities. So naturally, we're seeing a much richer, more cyclical commodity intensive demand growth environment. Jeff, you've always drawn a distinction between OPEX commodities and CAPEX commodities and the ones that would do well in each environment. Where are we now? Both are doing well. And the reason why I say that is because 
At this point right now, we have CapEx um, going, whether if it is old economy in China to take urbanization from 60% up to 80%. We have new economy demand through the investment in 5G networks. And then we have green economy demand in terms of thinking about energy transition. You overlay that on top of underinvestment, you end up with relatively tight markets like we're seeing today. Well, Jeff, there is a distinction, though, going back to the early 2000s when we had the last commodity super cycle, when it was driven by the boom out of China and it was all-encompassing. This feels different, especially given the energy transition that you guys have been talking about, this idea of a transition to green energy. Where does oil fit in on this kind of equation? If the prices go up too high, don't the oil producers just produce more? Well, let's first talk about what happens to oil demand. Somewhere around 24, 2024, 2025, you begin to slow the demand growth. And it's not until after 2030 that the demand growth actually tips over and starts to go negative. What that means over the next five years, the stimulus effect of all of this green spending actually amplifies oil demand. Now, let me ask you this. If we know we have a blueprint for energy transition in US, Europe, and China, um, and the clock is ticking on oil, are you going to invest in long live oil production? The answer is no. So the only thing you're going to invest in is short cycle production in the U.S., Middle East, and Russia. That's it. Everything else is too risky to make investment. So the hurdle rate to get investment in this sector is substantially higher than what it was historically. This is fascinating, this idea that because you're going to have so much infrastructure, you will need that much more oil to sort of finance it, et cetera. Where do the other commodities, the soft commodities that we were talking about, fit into this, given the fact that they have more elasticity, as Tom was talking about? Well, I think it goes back to the point where who is benefiting from the current stimulus right now? It's lower income households. In fact, if you look at consumption by postcode in the U.S., and we can divide it up by low income versus high income, you had turbocharged demand growth from low income households during January and the most, most of February. So you're seeing that <clears throat> filter right. through. That group consumes a lot more commodities than do the high income households. And that includes livestock, which has a big pull on grains and softs. Right. Jeff Curry, I don't want you to get in trouble with Mr. Solomon, but I want you to go outside your remit. Your colleague, Jan Hatzi, has over the decade has been absolutely brilliant about pushing back against the high inflation crew, the so-called inflationistas. Do you see the inflation of your world folding over into Jan Hatzi's world, or is it discreet? Well, when we think about... Um the evidence for cost push inflation, it just does not exist. It's always demand pull inflation. So the factors that are driving commodity prices um, end up potentially creating some inflation risk. And I think, you know, even Jan sees it getting up into that two and a half percent range as we get into, you know, April and in, in, in May when the comps start to get relatively positive. So, you know, I think the key issue here is that you look at bond yields. Bond yields are below 2%. And so even if you get to 2 2.5% inflation, these portfolio managers that hold these bond positions have a problem. And so the demand to hedge commodity, to hedge that inflation risk through commodities is quite high. And I think that's part of what you're seeing pushing these markets higher right now is that hedging demand to deal with even you know, the inflation creeping up into that 2% range. Jeff, we've got to finish up with some numbers and play the number game. 75 in Q3 on WTI. What are the big numbers you're looking for? Well, I, I think in terms of looking at demand, demand levels were much higher 
um, you know, in fourth quarter and in the current environment than what we thought, and we're drawing inventory. So the key issue is, will that inventory um, draw begin to slow down when we get in the third quarter, and will we see a supply response? But I like to emphasize that if you're Saudi Arabia right now, you've already committed to keeping production off the market till April, and supply is extremely inelastic in the near term, which means, you know, the upside risk until we start to see that supply response is quite high. Jeff, always a clinic and great to catch up, sir. Out of London, great. supporting London. Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs Global Head of Commodities Research. Appreciate it, Jeff. Washington, the government putting together a $1.9 trillion fiscal plan and many prominent economists on the left asking a simple question, is it too big? We asked those questions to White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese in our exclusive interview. We size this based on the needs that we see to get shots in people's arms, to get the schools reopened and to get relief to families and businesses out there. And as we look at this, we look at uh, the uh, estimates out there of uh, not only the output gap, but also the amount of pain we see in the labor market. Ten million people out of work still in this economy. We think that this is appropriately sized and, frankly, the right kind of uh, economic prescription to what is a unique and really precarious moment in our economy. Well, let's start with where the opposition is coming from where the questions are coming from. Then we can talk about the economics. We're talking about Larry Summers, a former Democratic Treasury Secretary, Olivier Blanchard, formerly of the IMF and widely considered to be a dove. These are not exactly Republican cheerleaders that are raising the most, the biggest questions of your administration right now. And Brian, I just wonder, are you disappointed by that, that that's where the questioning the opposition seems to be coming from? Look, we're having this debate across the board, and we welcome the opportunity to explain the contours of our plan. I think one of the things that's unique about this economic crisis is that this is a unique crisis and a, a unique pandemic-driven recession. And so we think about this, what, what, what the economy needs from the perspective of more akin to a natural disaster than a typical recession. We need to surge resources and support. And we've also seen over the past year an approach that says let's wait and see and, and take incremental steps has not worked and has put us in a pretty deep hole. So we feel pretty confident on the economics that this is the right way to go, to make the error in the direction of doing something that will definitively get um, our hands around this crisis and drive us to a stronger and more durable recovery going forward. Have you spoken to Summers or Blanchard in the last month or so? So we're reaching out to uh, ec economists and ac economic experts across the board, uh, including, uh, including uh, the folks you're mentioning. We want to make sure that we're getting input from all sides, that we're considering uh, arguments. And I want to be very clear, we take very seriously the risks, uh, the economic risks that are uh, out there. We spend a lot of time thinking about them, a lot of time worrying about them. That's our job. But as we assess and balance those risks, we believe that the risks of further scarring in the labor market, the risks of uh, further extending this economic pain outweigh the risks of doing too much, which is really the theory behind what we're trying to get done here. You clearly believe the risks are asymmetric, and Alan Blinder raised that point in an op-ed piece a little bit earlier in the last week, I think. Brian, I think for the individuals that I mentioned before, Summers, Blanchard, the risk that they're raising is an inflationary one. What gives you the conviction that that's not going to be an issue? Well, it's a risk that we're uh, keeping our eye on, and certainly uh, it's, it's something to consider. But if we look at the uh, you know, recent history over the last couple of decades, we've seen that um, the economy has the capability um, of running at stronger uh, paces. And we think that the tools exist to manage those risks uh, as we go forward. 
we can debate different ways of measuring the output gap, uh, measuring the risks associated with this particular crisis. But if you sum it all together, we are at a very precarious and unique moment of economic crisis. And that's why we feel pretty confident that we will be better off if we take these actions definitively, we put ourselves on a trajectory to growth, and then we work with the tools we have to manage any uh, challenges that we face going forward. Many people in the administration have been keen to stress that this is about aid, it's about relief, it's not about stimulus. And I think a question many people have had, Brian, is how giving a check to an individual that earns $75,000 a year should still be considered aid, relief, and not stimulus. What makes that relief? What's that line between relief and stimulus? If I have a job and I earn 75000 and you send me a $1,400 check, why is that relief? What is it relief from? Well, I think you need to look at the package in its entirety. And if you look at the combination of the direct payments that you're discussing, unemployment insurance uh, extension, and then targeted support to uh, the lowest income families uh, with children, essential workers uh, without children. In the aggregate, this is a very progressive, uh, progressively designed package to provide aid principally to the bottom half of the income distribution. With respect to the families that are out there that are middle class families that will be getting direct payments, a lot of those people are people who have uh, lost jobs or one of the earners in the family has lost jobs. Others are people who are facing additional costs associated with working during a pandemic, childcare, uh, other, um, other costs. And this provides a bridge. It provides support to get families and businesses through to the other side of this pandemic and to do so in a way that we don't, they don't have to take on additional risk or additional economic costs during the interim. Let's talk about that bridge in a different way. There is another question as to whether this plan, given its size, removes the bridge from getting here to an infrastructure plan further down the road. Now, Brian, I just wonder from your perspective, what are the constraints to further fiscal spending after this package has been delivered? It goes back to the question you raised before. This is a relief plan that is designed to provide immediate support to try to bridge and get us on the other side of this pandemic. I think that there is broad consensus, and we've been hearing it over the last couple of weeks in the outreach and the engagement we've been doing from business communities, from labor, from uh, members of Congress, from uh, the, the Democratic and Republican side, that we face very significant deferred maintenance, whether it's with our physical infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, energy infrastructures we're seeing play out uh, in the past week uh, in the events in Texas and, other, uh, and otherwise. Those deferred maintenance challenges are real. They are impeding the, the competitiveness of our economy, particularly in a competitive global environment as China and other countries are investing in their own infrastructure. And there's a very strong case for us to be increasing our investment, doing it in a way that will create more jobs, better jobs, and increase the competitiveness of our economy. That's a different uh, uh, economic objective, but one that sure. we are very focused on, the president's very focused on. So I'll just repeat that again, Brian, just to be clear on it. I'm just trying to understand what the constraints are in your mind to further fiscal spending, whether it's political space, whether it's fiscal space, whether it's inflation. What do you think the constraints are over loosening the purse strings even more in the future? Well, I think we have a fiscal framework and the president has laid out where if we're making permanent investments, those investments should be offset. And he's laid out a range of different uh, proposals for how to do that. That makes sense in terms of our long-term fiscal trajectory. If we're looking at temporary investments, particularly those that increase productivity uh, and help uh, put people back to work, improve the quality of jobs. Those are investments that we need to take a hard look at, uh, uh, at making right now. And in the current interest rate environment, uh, we could feel confident that we could make uh, consistent with a long-term fiscally sustainable framework. So you've brought up the current interest rate environment. Has the president spoke with Chairman Powell at all, who we'll hear from a couple of times this week? 
Look, we're, uh, we are, as an administration, uh, in staying in consistent contact with the economic officials around the administration. I'm not going to read out specific conversation the president has had. Yeah. But we're, uh, we're, in, we're in continual contact, and we're monitoring and assessing the markets, as you would expect, Secretary Yellen leading our efforts in doing so. You've jumped back into the political seat very quickly, Brian, because that was a very political response to that question. So I'll ask it again. Forgive me for doing so. Has he spoken to Chairman Powell specifically? Has the president had that conversation with the head of the U.S. Central Bank? Yeah, I'll give you a specific answer. I don't have any conversations from the president to read out. So there's no readout, there's no conversation. Don't you find that curious that we're putting through a massive $1.9 trillion plan that in the future would depend on where interest rates may or may not be in the future, and yet the president hasn't had a conversation with the chairman of the Federal Reserve? Look, I, like, as I said, uh, myself, Secretary Yellen, other senior administration officials are staying in consistent contact with uh, our economic agencies, uh, and uh, that's what we'll continue to do. Okay. Well, I'm just wondering how you'd frame the relationship with the central bank in the future. Is it different to what we've seen in the previous four years, Brian? What will it look like? Look, I think we have an approach to economic policy right now that is about addressing the current economic crisis and our focus on the fiscal policy response that we need to put into place. That's our, uh, our overriding focus right now, and that's the reason why we're working to get the American Rescue Plan passed. A little bit of time catching up with the White House National Economic Council Director, Brian Deese. Right now, this is a joy to give us perspective here at a perspective moment. Michael Cushman joins us with Morgan Stanley, the pedigree to Princeton London School of Economics in Columbia. But what's so important here is he's the rarest of rare commodities. He has enjoyed a seat at Morgan Stanley since time began. Michael Kushma, <laughs> you walked in the door to enjoy the crash of 1987. What was your crash of 1987 like? It was quite uh, quite interesting. I'd only been working for several months, and my first thought was, you know, last in, first out. That I was my career in Wall Street was going to end pretty pretty quickly. But uh, that crisis ended very fast. It did. It got. It was amazing, folks, to see how the markets cleared them by December. It was a it was an afterthought. Michael Cushman, I want to go right now to the changes in technology. John and Lisa have a bunch of fancy questions. We are in a time <laughs> of digital, social media, the technology, the way the messaging works. How do you handle a downdraft now versus the way you handled it ten years ago or thirty four years ago? Uh, well, the, the whole, your whole your whole day is longer. Um, you've got uh, more information. You've got more action in markets coming in London morning or in Asian hours. So you wake up in the morning in New York, and things can be already happening. We see more volatility in Treasury market futures sometimes overnight, leading the way into what happens in New York during the day. There's large scale demand for U.S. dollar bonds. Um, coming out of Asia and lesser degree out of Europe on a regular basis, affecting credit spreads, affecting the level of interest rates. Um, the cross-currency basis uh, affects a lot of demand for, for U.S. dollar assets. So there's all sorts of things going on, which links financial markets all over the world and relative value and opportunities to what's going on everywhere in the world, not just what's happening in, inside the United States borders. Well, here's an upgrade. Tom Keenan comes from Jonathan Golub and the team over at Credit Suisse, raising his 2021 S&P 500 price time. Target of 4,300 from 4,200 and citing the hottest yeah. GDP growth in some 35 
years, 4300 the new price target at Credit Suisse. And that goes to the double-digit call of Ben Laidler. And I'd also mention, John Farrell, the distinction at Credit Suisse that they still like tech. I believe that's what Mr. Golub has said over the last number of days. They've been very constructive on big tech yeah. over the last 12 months when others have started to shift, rotate towards some other sectors. Just add to this, if you can, Michael, on the bond side of things. We've been talking about this, how self-limiting a move would be in the bond market if it started to infect risk assets elsewhere. Can you weigh in on that? Uh, absolutely. You know, one of the interesting things which has happened over the last 12 months is that we've had this massive recovery in equity prices. Earnings from 12 months ago to today are probably up. Um, we've had a dramatic rise in commodity prices from last last winter to where we are where we are today. But many safe haven assets are still higher in price or lower in yield with regard to bonds, whether it's U.S. Treasuries, whether it's corporate bonds, high quality corporate bonds, whether it's um, uh, the yen, the Swiss franc, currencies like that would typically function as safe havens. Well, right now we're talking about boom times and commodity prices rising quite sharply the next 12 months, the fastest growth we've seen in the United States in decades. We can see a situation where the U.S. economy grows faster than the Chinese economy in 2021, which I think no one would have believed was possible um, a year or two ago or several years ago. So all these things are, are changing the narrative of what's what's going on in, in the world. And these boom conditions could, could continue. What that means is that the levels of interest rates we thought were restrictive for the U.S. economy may not be restrictive because there's so much fiscal policy coming. There's so much pent-up spending coming down the pipe. Uh, we saw the savings rate spike higher again in the first in January of this year, meaning more money is available to be spent later this year. So we're talking about a situation where the U.S. economy, and we see forecasts being raised continuously by various analysts on the street and elsewhere, you know, six, seven percent this year, and then again, four to five percent again next year, which is unheard of in the past, you know, 25, 40, 50 years. But there's a distinction here between higher rates, crimping borrowing and crimping growth, which 1.3% treasury yields, 1.4% treasury yields, probably won't do, and a reassessment of valuations that have gotten very high in specific sectors. And that's why Michael Shawell was talking about a less benign rotation beneath the surface within uh, some of these equity indexes, where you actually see some pretty significant losses in the high-flying stocks. How close are we to that, just based on valuations, relative value with Treasury yields going up? Well, the way, the way we look at it is that U.S. Treasury yields are the thing, one of the few things which still are you know, lower in yield than they were pre-pandemic. So 1.35% 10-year Treasury yield is still lower than it was, call it, in January, early February, mid-February last year, when about 1.5%. Real yields are a lot lower today still than they were in um, September. Of, of last year. So the question is, if the economy is going to do so well, why are these yields so low? Shouldn't they be at least back to where they were before? And this is kind of why I think the market is coming around to the idea that we didn't think yields could rise as much as they have, but they may rise more because they still look low relative to the implied growth forecasts we see in other assets. Michael. And the Fed may be happy with that. Maybe they will be. Michael Kushma, Morgan Stanley, CEO of Global Fixed Income. Mr. Dalja joins us. He's with John Hopkins Center for Health Security. He has been wonderful in giving us a broader perspective on this uh, pandemic. Dr. Adalja, The Atlantic has written up so nicely the John Hopkins uh, work, and they talk about the path to normal. The numbers are getting better. How do you perceive how the when of it, the way of it that we get back to normal? 
I think the first thing is really making sure that we never get in a position where hospitals go into crisis again. And towards that is get vaccine into the arms of all the nursing home residents, all the vulnerable adults that live in the community. And, and that will, will really change the perception because then you've tamed the virus. It's unable to kill at the rate that it's doing. And that's going to allow a lot more freedom to do things without worrying about passing this on to somebody that could get very ill or you yourself getting ill. Then I think the next step is really getting cases to uh, a lower level by vaccinating the population, just really making this more like mm -hmm. one of our respiratory viruses that we deal with every year. It's not going to go away. It's just right. going to become much more manageable. On deaths, if the horror was 4,000 deaths per day, we're celebrating that we're under 2,000 deaths per day. Maybe we get under 1,000 deaths per day nationally. That's a wonderful outcome. Is the virus still out there? Is, is Even if we get vaccinated, we get better, the numbers improve, is the thing still out there? Definitely. You have to remember that this is the seventh human coronavirus that's been discovered. And four of those coronaviruses caused 25% of our common colds. This is going to become something like that. It's going to be like our fifth seasonal coronavirus. And we will still see cases. We will still see outbreaks. We will still see deaths. But they will be nowhere near the levels that we saw during the height of this pandemic or even now once we get our vulnerable populations vaccinated, once it is defanged in and more like other respiratory viruses. But it's not going away. It's established itself in the human population. Population. It's endemic. There's an animal host that we don't know, an intermediate between bats and humans. We still don't know what that is. Uh, this is not an eradicable or an eliminable disease. Dr. Adalja, I'm going to say something that will make John Farrow fall off his chair and perhaps Tom Keene as well and be really optimistic about the potential here, especially as they uh, come up with new advances for the vaccines. The FDA yesterday indicating that they would allow a fast track process to adapt the vaccines available to any new strains of coronavirus as they come out. Are we getting close to like curing the common cold or being able to vaccinate for a whole host of other coronaviruses that are out there? I definitely think that the technology that was used to make the COVID-19 vaccine, messenger RNA or mRNA vaccine technology, has really uh, made it much a much easier process to make vaccines for targets that people hadn't pursued. And I do think that, that we're going to probably see somebody go after those coronaviruses that cause 25% of our common cold. So it won't be all of our common colds, but a substantial proportion could be reachable with this new technology, with the fact now that we have human coronavirus vaccines. But remember, the common cold is not just caused by coronaviruses, there are rhinoviruses, metanumoviruses, parainfluenza viruses. It's a whole group of viruses which will, which will still be around. So you will still likely still get the cold, which is probably less likely to get it from coronaviruses once we get more coronavirus vaccines. I got to say, as you talk, it doesn't make me want to go uh, and touch people again and hug them and, and go face to face, which raises a question of how confident people will be once we do get a herd immunity of some sort or another. I know it's controversial and get out there. And it's a question of services and how much they can resurge. Can we we go back to the life that we lived once or will life be just absolutely changed with people having a new awareness of health and spreading and an inability to control some of these viruses? I definitely think that after any kind of pandemic or infectious disease emergency, the population is going to change their perception of risk and disease. We've lived pretty much in luxury in the United States and many of the developed worlds where we don't worry about infectious diseases every time we step out the door, interact with other individuals. So there are going to be people who are still reticent to get back into it that may still wear masks and face 
face coverings when they're in crowded and congregated places on public transportation, even after the rules may, may change. So I do think that you're going to see people just much more attuned to the risk of respiratory viral infections after this, and that may take some time to dissipate, but many people will get back to what they were doing. They're already sort of getting back to what they were doing. But it's going to be a different population because we had 500,000 Americans die and the whole world turned upside down by a, by a virus. This was Leisha's version of sunshine and rainbows on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> Amish, well, great I mean... to catch up with you, sir. Amish Adalja of Johns Hopkins. Thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.